Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 325 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know what that means. We are here to break down everything that went down this week in the world of AEW, technically Ring of Honor as well, and NXT. We have an absolutely loaded midweek show for you and a ton to get to that I want to happen as expeditiously as possible for you. So let us not waste even another second. Simply let me remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a review. Let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen, and why you subscribe. We did get three new ratings over the last week. So far, at least one of them has popped through with a review. Great podcast from Steve K. 1988. Much appreciated the detailed recaps. I rarely have time to watch wrestling these days, and the podcast keeps me in the loop and entertained. Well, Steve, thank you very much for that review. Please do not forget to leave the reviews along with the ratings on Apple Podcasts. Every time you leave a five-star review, we will read it right here on the show. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You will be the first to know whenever we release a new episode. You'll also be able to uh, you know, join us in, in talking about the shows live while they are on the air, whether TV shows, pay-per-views, whatever the case can vote in polls, participate in live Twitter Spaces audios. You can DM us questions and comments for the show. There are myriad reasons to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. As I said, a ton to talk about, and I don't want to spend that much time doing it. The Silver King personally is extremely busy this Thursday, so we're going to take our time. We're not going to rush through, but I am not going to give you much of an intro here. I want to get right to the meat, the big meaty men slapping meat, as it were, and break down everything that happened this week across AEW and NXT. As always, we will have timestamps in the episode description, so if you want to skip around to one segment or the other for whatever reason, all you do, check the description, find the timestamp, jump to where you want to go. But as always here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, we are hoping that you listen to the entire show. This week, we are indeed going to start with AEW, which had a Interesting, I guess is the best way I can put it, edition of Rampage that seemed to be more focused on Ring of Honor storylines than it actually was AEW storylines. And then, of course, Dynamite kicked off what now appears to be a two-week, four-episode edition of Fighter Fest. I will get to that at the end of the AEW breakdown because I definitely have some thoughts on this latest special edition of an AEW show coming on the back end of so many other special editions of AEW shows. Again, we will talk about that at the end. Let's first start by breaking down everything that happened across Dynamite and Rampage this week. And I want to start with the main event of Dynamite on Wednesday, the AEW Tag Team Championship match, the Young Bucks against Swerve in Our Glory and Ricky Starks and Powerhouse Hobbs in a triple threat match. Now, this was the main event and it was contested under the far inferior rules with only two legal men at a given time. The first bit of this match really was some, in my opinion, ridiculous choreography. Ridiculous both in that it was cool, but also that it was absurd. 
Uh, then my cable did go out for a couple of minutes. I'm just being candid. Eventually it came back on and I did see the vast majority of the match. Tagging was completely irrelevant in another Rick Knox special. We got a big standoff of two big meaty men. With Keith Lee and Hobbs in the middle of the ring, Hobbs had a great crossbody. Then he flew two thirds of the way across the ring, coming up just a tad short on a frog splash. Uh, he had got a near fall there in a great spot. Nick was on Hobbs' shoulders when Stark's tightrope walked and hit a springboard cutter. Lee fell to one knee on a superkick party, then got knocked down with three superkicks as Starks joined the Bucks. The Bucks then did superkick party to Starks and ran Hobbs into Knox, which knocked out the referee. The Bucks brought a title into the ring. Swerve eventually grabbed it and he stared at Lee's back. Then he threw the title to the side and like seemed to talk shit to Keith Lee's back only to eat a low blow for Matt Jackson. Matt used the title on Lee, Hobbs, and Swerve eventually for a 2.5 count. Then they hit the BTE trigger on Swerve, but that fall got broken. Lee stopped the Melter driver by catching Nick midair. He and Swerve then combined to take out Nick before teaming up for the Spirit Bomb-Swerve-Stomp combination on Matt in a false finish that was interrupted by Starks and Hobbs. Hobbs hit a spinebuster on Lee, then spinebusters on Swerve and both Jacksons into Lee's body on the canvas. Starks hit Swerve with a picture-perfect spear for a broken fall. Lee took out the Bucks with one of their Jordans and then suplexed Hobbs over the top rope outside. Starks somehow knocked Lee onto the apron with like a single punch. Swerve then did his springboard moonsault off of Lee's chest to the outside. I think it's the third time he's done that. Starks went for a tope when Lee pounced him and then did a tope cannonball himself. Starks then got hit by Swerve with the Swerve Stomp for the one, two, three to win the titles. Confetti went off immediately after the bell. Unfortunately, we barely got a celebration, not because of a post-match attack, but the match actually went long and it was a minute or two over and AEW had to go off the air. So we didn't really get to bask in the glory, as it would be, of Lee and Swerve with the championships. Let me start with a couple gripes and get those out of the way, and then we'll get to the the praise I do have for this match. There was zero build for this match during the show. Like, it was mentioned that it was coming up, but there were no promos. There was really nothing to get viewers excited or anticipating this match. And then, yes, the tagging was so non-existent that I actually had no idea whether Swerve and Starks were the legal men at the end. I thought Swerve was, but I didn't think Starks was. And as it turns out, Before I taped the show today, I actually went back and checked. Starks was not the legal man. In kayfabe, the Young Bucks should still be the tag team champions. But there you go. We talk about the tagging being being an issue and all that type of stuff. And here you have a great example of a title change where if you were even remotely paying attention to the tagging, you knew or you thought at least that Starks was not the legal man. Last but not least, this title change really should have happened at a big show, double or nothing, the next pay-per-view all out, whatever the case. I assume this was a plans change situation given Jeff Hardy's DUI. I I really truly do believe that the plan was for the Hardys to become the tag team champions. So they put it on the Young Bucks temporarily while they figured out what the hell they were going to do. I think the Bucks have the now shortest reign of any tag team champion in AEW history. That's obviously notable, but it's for a reason. And the reason was for them to figure out what they were going to do with the tag team title picture moving forward. So with all of that stuff out of the way, holy shit, was this a banger? Like we've seen Lee and Swerve show out in their prior AEW matches, but they really got a chance to shine here. Lee in particular was awesome. 
And that's appropriate that they were so awesome given they won the tag team titles in that spot. Starks was exceptional in his flashes. I didn't feel like he got enough time to really sparkle during the match. The false finishes were nicely done and the finish itself did properly reach a crescendo. It also gave a reason with Lee's cannonball why no one else was able to break up the fall at the end. Now, AEW not using the preferred triple threat rules, it remains insanely silly. But when no one is keeping track of tagging, like Rick Knox, the referee, I guess maybe it doesn't matter as much. But I I insist, AEW should just allow all of their tag team matches to be scramble rules. It would just make, or, or tornado rules. It would make life so much easier and they could just go all out and do spot fest and no one would be the wiser. Also, Uh, The spot with Swerve considering hitting Lee with the belt, I just thought it was kind of nonsensical for that to happen in the middle of a title match. I know they have issues back and forth with each other, but why would he even consider in the middle of a match where they can win the titles turning on his partner? He just wouldn't. Like, no one with any type of brain would do that. So it took me out of it in that individual moment. But despite the gripes, this was entertainment plus and a very needed title change because clearly AEW had to come up with a plan after Hardy's situation. Now, I went 4.25 stars and an A for this. Others are probably going to have it a little bit higher, but I personally prefer more composed matches with storylines over things that are pure spot fest, which is basically what this was. And I'm not criticizing it for it. I'm just explaining that's not my personal preference. Now, of course, I would be remiss here if I continued, and I did not share with you guys my enthusiasm, my excitement, my happiness for Keith Lee and Swerve, a couple guys who should have been massive stars already in WWE, but were released for completely nonsensical reasons. Losing those two guys, a total unforced error by WWE. I've said it many times before, and now we see what they truly are capable of achieving. Even in WWE, we did get to see that with Keith, but they somehow ignored the fact that he was super over face-to-face with Roman Reigns, face-to-face with Brock Lesnar, and did what they did with him. Anyway, hopefully for Keith Lee and Swerve, this is just the start of a lot of great things in AEW. So that was the main event. We clearly have a lot more to talk about. Let's get to it. On Rampage, Eddie Kingston fought Konosuke Takeshka. Kingston kicked out after a blue thunderbomb and hit Takeshka with an exploder suplex outside. He only got a one count after a lariat, then hit a Liger bomb for a near fall. Takeshka then blocked Eddie's forearms and hit a brainbuster for a near fall. Kingston literally put Takeshka on his head on a half and half. He completely no-sold it with an immediate lariat. Then Takeshka no-sold a back fist before being hit with a second one. Uh, and then Kingston fell atop Takeshka in the middle of the ring for the one, two, three. Really fun match. I enjoyed it immensely. I didn't think I'd like them working together, but it was pretty damn good. But the no-selling in the finish, it always takes me out of matches like that. So I went 3.5 stars and a B there. Kingston backstage put over Takeshka as the future. He said his schedule is now clear to make Chris Jericho bleed and get revenge for his Ruby Soho. Again, what's the relationship there? Why does he care? They haven't really told us other than all of a sudden they're friends. But it was a typically great Kingston promo. On Dynamite, Chris Jericho came out looking like his WWE days, wearing a red suit with his hair nicely tied back and a really neat ponytail. Jericho provided proof that being friends with Kingston is a path to nowhere, and he said Ruby is one of those examples getting her hand crushed in the car door, obviously, last week. He said Kingston made the barbed wire challenge uh, because he's a mark for Terry Funk, Onita, Sabu, guys like that. 
Jericho said Kingston next week will be facing the Painmaker, which is his New Japan persona, for those who don't know. And this will be the final fight of their saga because Kingston is a loser who will never be at his level. Kingston backstage screamed that Jericho would pay for with every ounce of his blood. I had been growing tired of this feud, but this was an expert-level promo by Jericho. And it got me fully invested, fully juiced up for next week's match. Now, say what you will about Jericho these days. He's still one of the best on the mic in the game. And Kingston, of course, is one of the best as well. So what we got on Rampage and Dynamite from these guys, it definitely sold the match, no question. Now on Dynamite, we had Jon Moxley against Takeshka in an AEW Interim World Championship Eliminator match. This was even more of a strong style fight than the Kingston one. Mox legitimately busted open his nose and Takeshka's face seemed to get opened up hard way with a kick. Takeshka hit a brainbuster for a near fall, but Mox got knees up on a frog splash. Takeshka escaped an arm breaker, hitting a hurricanrana and a tope con hero. Then he hit a frog splash for a 2.8 false finish, plus a blue thunderbomb. Mox avoided a pump knee, hitting paradigm shift and the hammer elbows. Takeshka avoided death rider and hit a German suplex bridge for a 2.9 false finish that may legitimately have been three. Like I need to go back and watch that again. Moxon hit a few headbutts in Death Rider, adding more hammer elbows and eventually the bulldog choke for the knockout submission win and title retention. Mox was then somehow busted open in the head at the end. I have no idea how that happened. So Takeshka lost clean to Kingston and then got to fight the interim world champion. I know the storyline they told and I'm glad that they did tell us the storyline. Mox was so impressed with that match, he wanted to go against him. But it feels like someone should really have to earn that type of opportunity. Besides that, the color here was good because it was real, even if it somehow felt typical for a Mox match. The wrestling was also fantastic. I went four stars and an A minus, which may be a quarter star generous, but I just, I really straight up loved the work in this match. Takeshka is the truth. He's a future star. And it was great to have him featured again, doing it this time against a world champion, even if it was a little bit convoluted and forced. On Rampage, Orange Cassidy fought Tony Nese. Danhausen stopped Mark Sterling from interfering late. Orange hit a stun dog millionaire for a near fall. Then he countered a pump handle slam into a tornado DDT and hit two more tornado DDTs, one diving off the top rope for another near fall. Sterling distracted. Nice hit a pump handle power slam for another near fall. Danhausen then punched Sterling in the balls and cursed Nice. Cassidy hit the orange punch for the win. The crowd had a lot of fun here. Commentary tried to sell this over and over again as some huge main event win. No, it's not. Tony Beating Tony Nese is not a huge win, no matter how you slice it. It was perfectly entertaining, but nothing worth crowing about, which is what they were doing at the end. So on Dynamite, we had a TNT title match, Wardlow against Orange. Best friends backstage said they're just going to blatantly help Orange cheat. The first half of the match was comedy. Wardlow ripped the pockets out of Orange's jeans. I did think that was funny and kind of smart. Wardlow removed his straps. Orange put them back on for him. Wardlow then did a really impressive cartwheel counter out of a hurricanrana. Best friends grabbed a chainsaw and got ejected. Wardlow found and pulled Danhausen from under the ring, only to eat an orange punch. Orange countered a powerbomb into a tornado DDT. Wardlow then hit an F10 and stood on Orange's chest for a 2.5. Commentary sold it as the first time someone's kicked out of that move, which I definitely think was important. Orange countered another powerbomb into a hurricanrana, hitting a tope suicida and driving Wardlow twice into the post. Orange then countered into Stun Dog Millionaire, hitting Orange Punch and Beach Break for a false finish. Wardlow caught another Orange Punch for one powerbomb and the win. Wardlow then picked up Orange for a fist bump 
after the match. And I thought it was good. You know, I, I don't really know how to describe a match that's half comedy and then pretty damn good action, but against a guy that maybe shouldn't have that much action against him. So I went 3.5 stars and a B here. I just had total mixed feelings about it. Like on one hand, given both of them are upper mid carters, it went an appropriate amount of time at 12 minutes and Orange got enough offense to look legitimate in a loss. But on the other hand, Orange kind of got too much offense. Like Wardlow should not have looked vulnerable this quickly, which really tells me they shouldn't have done this match. It wasn't time for this. He kicked the ever-loving shit out of Scorpio Sky and then got taken to the brink by Orange Cassidy. Why do that so soon when he could be shitting on a lot of other people leading into a match with Orange, maybe at All Out or something like that, where you do something like this and it's super fun. It felt like this was one of those matches or segments that Tony Khan booked purely for ratings. Like, irregardless of anything happening in creative, in kayfabe, what your plans are going forward, you just want to pop a rating, so you put Orange Cassidy and Wardlow in a match. That's what this felt like to me. Uh, speaking of, we had Claudio Castagnoli and Jake Hager fighting on Dynamite. Claudio did a 619 for a 1.5 count, then much later hit a springboard European uppercut and a running European uppercut into the barricade. Claudio did a short swing and a sharpshooter. Hager begged for help. Matt Menard and Angela Parker distracted, so Hager could hit a Uranagi for a 2.5. They distracted again, but Claudio hit a pop-up European uppercut and the Ricola bomb for the win. Claudio got a great response as usual. I just found this match to be really lackluster. Hager simply cannot hang with him in the ring. I think AEW has done a decent job hiding Hager, putting him in multi-man matches, working with Chris Jericho, not having him speak. But him front and center in a singles match, with a guy like Claudio, someone that level of, of talent, it really just didn't work. On Dynamite, Hangman Adam Page was disappointed at losing the Royal Rampage to Brody King. Dark Order then challenged House of Black on his behalf, and that was it. You remember not too long ago when Hangman was over like Rover as the world champion, and now he's back doing one-minute backstage half-comedy interview segments with Dark Order and seemingly not giving a shit about anything? Yeah, to me, this is very rough to see. Uh, on Dynamite, Christian Cage and Luchasaurus hit the stage. Christian said the Varsity Blondes in the ring were annoying. He said Brian Pillman Sr. was average at best, but he respected that he actually wrestled, unlike Jungle Boy's father. Christian said Pillman would be appalled at his son's ability. Then he showed Griff Garrison looking like Jungle Boy and sicked Luchasaurus on him. So he got Luchasaurus against Garrison. Luchasaurus kicked Garrison's head into the ring post and choke slammed him. Christian demanded a second one. Then Luchasaurus did the snare trap claw, now called the tar pit for the submission win. After the bell, Luchasaurus headbutted Pillman, put him on a table, and choke slammed Garrison into him. The table didn't break, so he had to do it a second time. Look, this was straight up awful. Uh, I told you all last week that Christian and his promos, his forced outrage bullshit, had already jumped the shark. This week, it all drowned. The material was weak. The delivery sucked. The match was a total eye roll. I'm just completely out of this, and I really should not be this quickly out of a storyline involving Christian and Jungle Boy, two people that AEW is very high on. Zero point zero. On Dynamite, footage was shown of Thunder Rosa, you know, the AEW Women's Champion, losing to Miyu Yamashita via small package at a TJPW show in Japan in what was billed as an AEW Eliminator match. So on Dynamite, Thunder cut a promo saying that she'll let 
Yamashita get a title match, but she's really happy to be part of Thunderstorm with Tony Storm. Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter then interrupted to talk shit and walked off. So just let me get this straight. AEW allowed its women's champion to lose a non-title match off its television and will give a no-name wrestler. And when I call Yamashita a no-name, I mean to the vast majority of the American audience. They're going to give a no-name a title match, presumably on AEW television. I mean, it might be good in-ring work. In fact, I'm sure it's going to be great in-ring work. But that does not make a shred of sense. And then, and when I say this, granted, they haven't fought since March. But then Britt Baker is already back as a challenger for Rosa. The women's booking here, it gets worse and worse by the week. This did lend a lot more credence to my women's tag team theory involving Sasha Banks and Naomi that I shared last week. But really, seeing all this transpire all in one segment, I was pretty pissed off. I just got to be honest. I am pissed off. I'm pissed to the highest level of pissedivity. On Rampage, Serena Deeb and Mercedes Martinez fought a couple jobbers. Just being candid, I completely missed their names. Uh, it didn't really matter. The heels dominated after the bell. Deeb attacked Martinez, who is the ROH women's champion. She put her in a serenity lock, forcing a tap out. It was really a whole lot of nothing, but that match is now going to happen at the uh, Dishonor show. The pay-per-view, I think it's on July 23rd, that Ring of Honor is putting on. Uh, Death Before Dishonor. Uh, also on Dynamite, Deeb fought Anna Jay. Deeb hit a dragon screw, but Anna caught her in the Queen Slayer briefly. Deeb escaped with an arm drag and one with the Serenity Lock. After the bell, Martinez ran in for the save, even though she's been a heel. Deeb basically tried to have a technical wrestling match with someone in Anna Jay who is really not near her level right now. Now, to be fair, not many women are near Serena Deeb's level in the ring. And that's not to say that this match was bad because it did have some bright spots, but it also had a lot of botches and mistakes that took me out of it. Ultimately, I found it to be an unsuccessful match. Backstage in the trainer's room, Ty Conti talked shit to Anna, saying she needs to make better choices for her career to get on TV more. They used to be friends before Conti's heel turn. That's why this was relevant, and certainly that did make sense. On Rampage, Athena and Chris Statlander said Jade Cargill is so scared about losing the TBS championship that she's denying legitimate competition the opportunity to challenge her. They said they aren't going anywhere until they both get title shots. On Dynamite, the baddies were still angry and talking shit to the interim baddie who is there for some reason despite Jade literally being in charge. Jade's like, I hate this person, yet they're still there somehow. I don't understand why. On Rampage, uh, Jonathan Gresham and Lee Moriarty fought the Gates of Agony, which is the Tully Blanchard tag team. Uh, this was a Ring of Honor match. Gresham walked out on Moriarty late in the match and then hugged Tully Blanchard. Gates of Agony then hit a big lariat and a falling gut buster for the win. Gresham later said he's following Blanchard's plan. Tony Schiavone announced Moriarty will get an ROH world title shot next week. I thought it was originally planned for the pay-per-view, but I guess they moved it to television. Uh, This grabbed my attention. Uh, You know, I've been limited in terms of my Ring of Honor knowledge, but this kind of is interesting to me. I will say though, it's a strange pairing that was not only out of left field, but felt completely unnecessary. Like it was just a week or two ago, I was praising Gresham for how good of a job he was cutting promos on his own and getting me interested in the Ring of Honor title. And now they're pairing him with Tully Blanchard to what end? Like, I don't know why that's necessary. The guy does seem to be over and super talented and able to cut promos for himself. It's just one of those things where it feels like They want to give Tully Blanchard stuff to do, so they're giving him the champion. Gresham is guy who doesn't need a mouthpiece. 
On Dynamite, Daniel Garcia said Wheeler Yuta has been cosplaying him for the last few months and then challenged him to a ROH pure title match that, as far as I know, was already previously booked. So he challenged him to a match that was already scheduled. Garcia is supremely talented in the ring, but he is the exact type of person who really could have used something like NXT or the WWE Performance Center to help him develop character, promo ability, personality, all that type of stuff. I believe WWE actually passed on him, which is their fault, but he is the exact type of raw prospect who needs all of that. Jay Lethal also cut a heated promo into a headset saying he, the student, would take the ROH TV title off Samoa Joe, the teacher. And that was really in terms of what we ha- what happened on the screen, all that went down across Dynamite and Rampage. Now, I mentioned on the last show that AEW is basically making every week a special episode. It basically means that none of them are actually that special. And I maintain that. So naturally, when AEW changed Fighter Fest from two nights, which is what it used to be, to two weeks, four shows, I was obviously floored. Fighter Fest debuted as an event at some like video game conference that Kenny Omega co-promoted with the guy in, that led that conference. What is the reason that these shows are Fighter Fest? And why are there four of them? Like, like, why are they happening? Why are they happening now? What is the purpose of all of this? Stuff like Blood and Guts, The Great American Bash, Halloween Havoc, there are specific reasons for those events happening. Blood and Guts is because of a certain match. Great American Bash and Halloween Havoc, those are because of holidays. So they're doing special shows. There's no reason for Fighter Fest. There's no reason for Fighter Fest being a week, let alone two weeks and four shows. To me, it feels extremely forced, very odd. And again, it just feels like a really cheap ratings ploy by Tony Khan. Now, that's not to say that AEW is not putting good and interesting matches on the shows. They are. But in terms of storylines leading into them, they're very forced, they're very short. And because they jam-pack those storylines to create reasons, short-term reasons, to have these matches on the special shows, it inhibits and literally hurts the build for the upcoming pay-per-view. Now, granted, All Out at this point is still probably seven weeks away. I don't have an exact number, but it's they have about two months to get to All Out. So they're not in a rush just yet. But don't forget, they wasted this week on Fighter Fest, and they're wasting next week on Fighter Fest. So then you're six weeks away from one of your four tentpole shows, and you need to kind of start pushing things and getting them developed faster, as opposed to the way AEW used to operate, where you had three full months between shows, and those storylines for the next pay-per-view almost always started one or two weeks following the last show. So, you know, they are shortening their time frame. There's been talk about AEW possibly adding more pay-per-views and more paid special events, um, maybe going to like one every other month, six per year. You know, now you're starting to enter WWE territory where things get a lot, you know, are are rushed and it kind of takes you away from what made AEW so special, which was the long-term storytelling, you know, shows that kind of got you invested on a week-to-week basis. Now, everything seems like a shotgun. It's like, boom, we're doing this next week. Boom, we're doing this the week after. Um, You know, matches used to get announced multiple weeks in advance. Now it's kind of like, Tony Khan's announcing matches WWE style. He's still doing it way earlier than WWE does. But instead of doing it a full week in advance, sometimes it's the day of, the day before, or maybe on a rampage for Dynamite the following week. Again, you know, again, I'm not saying that 
that's bad in totality, but it's not what AEW was about and one of the reasons I appreciated the way they booked their show so much in the past. So we'll see, you know, what happens here going forward, but my suggestion to AEW, if anyone is listening, cut down on the special events or at the very least space them out. You don't need Road Rager, Blood and Guts, and two weeks of Firefest, four special shows all in a five-week span. Not to mention the fact that you had Forbidden Door in there as well. Space it out. Everyone's going to be happier because of it. That is AEW for the week. Let us move on to NXT. Roxanne Perez was found beaten down in the parking lot when the show started. Cora Jade later blamed herself for not traveling to the arena with Roxanne, and she singled out Toxic Attraction as the attackers. Toxic later completely denied attacking Roxanne, but Mandy Rose said, hey, everything falls into the place for champions like her. Other wrestlers were asked about the attack, and they were found discussing it during the show, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, Nikita Lyons said she didn't do it, but she would happily step in as a challenger if Perez can't fight. In the ring, Mandy said Roxy couldn't beat her even if healthy, and that she was tired of waiting and demanded an answer about her status. Cora Jade came out and said the fans were promised a title match, and she would be happy to give Mandy one if she has to take Perez's place. And then Roxy entered with taped ribs, making it seem like Cora may have been the attacker trying to capitalize on this situation. So we got the match, Mandy Rose against Roxanne Perez for the NXT Women's Championship. The crowd chanted Roxy two belts. Mandy worked the injury with strikes and abdominal stretch. Roxanne came back with a flying crossbody and a twisting Russian leg sweep for a two count. She also had a tope suicida, then took out Gigi Dolan and JC Jane at ringside before hitting Pop Rocks on Mandy. That's outside, by the way, uh, at, the, at the ringside area. Cora ran over to help Roxy get back into the ring when JC distracted the referee. Cora then hit her in the ribs with the women's tag team title before Mandy hit a pump knee for the win. After the bell, Cora called her pathetic and selfish, screaming that she brought her to NXT. Jade then took her footboard and went to crack it over Roxy's back, but it was gimmicked and it flew into two pieces before it could even touch her. I do give Cora Jade credit though, because she was able to capitalize on the mistake and took the half of the board that she had left and just beat the shit out of Roxy with it. And that was pretty cool as the show went off the air. Now, the heel turn by Cora, it became semi-obvious in the moment, but it was certainly not expected going into the show. And let me clarify, I am intrigued by a heel Cora Jade. It should be something that helps her development overall as a wrestler. And I am interested to see where it takes her character. It also better explains why this was booked in some respects, with the tag team title match coming first. But it nevertheless remains a poor, somewhat idiotic decision. And the storyline is extremely odd, to say the very least. WWE basically refuses to allow two babyface women to be friends at any level of its product. It's honestly amazing at this point. Even if Cora was going to turn, doing it now in that moment was absurd. They literally just won the women's tag team titles last week, ending a reign that lasted for 241 out of 245 days. So NXT wasted this big moment where the titles finally get taken off Toxic Attraction. They waste that moment for this storyline instead of actually giving the championships to a team like Hayden Carter and Casey Catanzaro, Katana Chance, whatever the hell you want to call her, that could have actually made a run with them and done something exciting and different. The better booking would have been to have them lose the tag team titles in a rematch this week, 
with Roxanne backstage saying, ah, you know what? That sucks that we lost them. It was great to be champions with you, even if it was for a week. I'm going to cash in my contract next week on you, Mandy Rose, because I want to chop off the head of Toxic Attraction. Then Cora would have a legitimate reason to believe that her friend's eyes were never with her in being tag team champions. They were always on the bigger prize. She could cost her the main title the following week and everything would make complete sense. Instead, now we have a dynamic of one tag team champion turning on another with both of them still holding the titles. Cora didn't even align with Toxic Attraction, yet somehow Toxic Attraction played into distracting the referee so that she could attack Roxanne. And now the breakout contract is completely wasted, just like a Money in the Bank contract thrown into the garbage. On top of all of that, you have Roxanne Perez, a baby face who's over, who you know just won the tag team titles. She's now injured in the parking lot, and yet she still decides to cash in the contract. Not shows up for a match that's planned and scheduled, cashes in the contract to have that match. When she simply could have found someone and said, hey, you know what? I'm hurt. I can't have the match. Let's do it next week. Dumbass baby face move right there. So they made her look stupid. Again, don't get me wrong. I like when my expectations are swerved. And I am curious and excited about a heel Cora Jade. But the booking still needs to be good. And while this could surprise me, maybe they have plans that are just going to shut my ass up next week. And if they do, I'm happy to admit that. In this moment, looking at what we got Tuesday night on NXT, it did not make any sense to do it whatsoever in this way. So, okay, that's it for like the main event topic for NXT. Let's move to the rest of the show. Apollo Crews fought Giovanni Vinci. Wade Barrett posed with Vinci during his entrance, which was really funny. Cruz hit a flying blockbuster for a near fall, later caught Vinci off a springboard with a high dropkick to a really big response from the crowd. Cruz tried a blockbuster again when Vinci caught him midair by the collarbone for a deadlift vertical suplex. Cruz hit his midair spinning powerbomb. Vinci then stole a phone from a fan and threw it in the ring. That left an opening for Zion Quinn to attack from the crowd. Vinci then hit Cruz with the last ride powerbomb for the win in like 12-13 minutes. We discussed last week how this matchup didn't really make sense because both guys in theory needed wins in this spot. The Zion attack clearly alleviated that concern. It gave Cruz an out, gave him an excuse, but it was also kind of a shame because it ended what was otherwise a really strong wrestling match. These guys worked great together. Both of them got over in the ring. That was the most important. I was around 3.5 stars in a B before the finish, but you know, it was a B match, very entertaining. Uh, Cameron Grimes was despondent in the ring without any excuses for losing to Braun Breaker. Uh, He said, look, I wrestled a great match. I hit the cave-in. It still wasn't good enough to beat him. Grimes said he must be destined to be a loser because he lost the North American title a couple weeks ago and he lost his NXT title opportunity uh, this week or last week, I should say. JD McDonough started shit-talking, but he did concede that Grimes showed a ton of heart. He said his attack on Braun made Grimes old news. Grimes said he's not an Irish ace, but an Irish asshole. McDonough delivered a headbutt before escaping with Grimes screaming at him. So they can say asshole on NXT, but they can't say shit or bitch on Raw or SmackDown anymore. They have to bleep those. That does not make any sense whatsoever. So they're going to fight next week. It's going to be a banger if they get enough time. It does make sense for McDonough to beat Grimes before officially going after Breaker. Hopefully, if McDonough does beat Grimes, this is his final NXT match and he gets called up to the main roster after SummerSlam. He's really done all he can do there. There's nowhere else for him to go. He's won the North American Championship. They're clearly not going to make him 
the NXT champion. I suppose he could find a tag team partner and go after those titles. But to me, this guy is a ready-made mid-carder, someone who could be contending and winning the Intercontinental title or the US title on the main roster. And I really hope he gets that opportunity soon. Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams were clubbing with four ladies before taking them to their penthouse roof to party and go hot tubbing while drinking champagne. They were celebrating their wins at the Great American Bash. There really wasn't much to it. But as usual, the charisma of Carmelo and Trick, they just shined. It jumped off the screen at you. These guys are legitimate stars. The Diamond Mine guys were doing film study when the Creed brothers left. Roderick Strong got angry that Damon Kemp not only cost him the tag team titles last week, but wanted to run back the match. Strong instead challenged him one-on-one for next week, and then he walked out of the room. This continues to be a really slow drip storyline that one has to imagine at this point ends with Strong being like excommunicated from the group. Now, whether that's at the end of his contract or something else is planned, that all remains to be seen. But it continues to be developed and executed well. It's just strange that there's not an endpoint that's obvious. And even if they do kick Strong out, there's really not a leader. There's not a single person to kind of take Diamond Mine going forward. And a group like that, which is about training and, you know, and development needs a leader. It needs a teacher. And right now they just don't even have one. Lash Legend fought Indy Hartwell. Lash was dribbling a basketball when rhyming and taunting Indy backstage. When the ball rolled away, Alba Fire's Red Bat stopped it before commercial break. Lash was beating on Indy when Fire appeared in the crow's nest, draped in red lights, juggling the basketball. Indy came back with a spine buster. She went for her springboard elbow drop, but literally completely slipped and crash landed on the canvas. It was really brutal. Legend covered and Hartwell then countered it into like a kind of like collarbone clutch pinfall combination for the one, two, three, and four minutes. Fire then chased after Lash, swinging the bat a couple times and screaming. The botch for Indy was really unfortunate. I'm glad she's okay. That's the most important thing, but it was really rough to see. It was actually a decent match to that point, despite it being short, but the booking for Legend to lose that quickly was ridiculous when you're trying to build her up. Alba looked good once again. The new gimmick is working for her. It's about getting her on the screen, giving her opportunities. They really just need to elevate her into women's champion at this point. Solo Sokoa fought Von Wagner. Mr. Stone, Wagner, and Sokoa all cut promos backstage. This was one of two matches on NXT this week that definitely deserved the tag. Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> but this one, even more than the other one, this was a straight up brawl, like Godzilla versus King Kong style. You know, Roman Reigns, uh, Braun Strowman, uh, Braun Strowman, Keith Lee, one of those types of matches. It ended in a double countout after 10 minutes, and they continued brawling all the way to the back. The fight continued even later. They tore apart a women's dressing room and kicked each other's asses in the parking lot. Sophia Cromwell eventually calmed Wagner down. Stone tried to do the same for Sokoa, but Sokoa just picked him up and threw him into a dumpster to a really big pop. Not my favorite finish doing a double countout, but it was appropriate given their style of fighting. And it actually did make me interested in seeing another match between them with a stipulation. So I was totally okay with this. Grayson Waller backstage basically ran down Wesley for a bit. They made it clear they'll be fighting soon. There was no response during the show and therefore not much to say here, but when they do eventually fight, it should be a banger of a match. Tony D'Angelo and Stax fought Idris Anofe and Malik Blade. D'Angelo said Electro Lopez has proven to be a vital part of the family, but he wanted to test Legado del Fantasma to see if they could get to her level. I thought that meant that Legado would be wrestling in the match, but instead it was D'Angelo and Stax. Blade eventually took the uh, fisherman's neckbreaker from D'Angelo, who demanded Legato attack Blade in the post-match. I suppose the idea is that Santos Escobar is eventually going to return from the hospital and break up the entire thing. 
But this is an example of moving yet staying in the same place. It just nothing really happened. This feud has completely died, and I don't really know that it can be revived at this point. Pretty Deadly were wearing white cowboy hats and pink bandanas, walking into a saloon frequently uh, attended by Briggs and Jensen. They talked shit to the NXT UK champions. Uh, Fallon Henley stopped a bar fight, and she set a match next week. Deadly definitely looked the part, uh, but the Briggs and Jensen stuff, it just doesn't hit for me. Maybe it resonates with others who are from the South, but I literally live in Florida, and it does not work for me. Chase U was on its class trip to London, but it was only Andre Chase, Bodie Hayward, and Thea Hale. They visited monuments, walked Abbey Road, etc. Chase was reading a script for an advertisement that said Chase U was the seventh best institution. When he went off on the dude who wrote it, Chase U is not seventh best at anything. Uh, this continues to hit. It does leave me wanting a little bit more, though. Maybe a student who purposely causes trouble and infiltrates the school. Something to create a feud or rivalry. Maybe someone trying to start up a rival school. Like bringing Timothy Thatcher back and you do Thatch's Thatch can against Chase U. There needs to be another element here to really make it work. Uh, there was another mysterious QR code on NXT. Last week it showed 8, 10, 11 like a time. This week it was a Wordle with C as the last letter and the vowel O as the only letters highlighted. It looked to me obviously like it's a five letter name. And when I went to like a word finder to see how many words end in C that include O in one of these two spots that were open, there's very few. There's like eight total words. And one of them is Havoc. Now, clearly they are not promoting Halloween Havoc because that's in October. And you wouldn't do a mysterious QR code type of deal to promote it. But what this reminds me of is the teasing that they had, the teasing vignettes that they had for Tegan Knox when she made that really short-lived return to NXT before getting called up to SmackDown. So I happen to believe it's along the same lines. An injured wrestler who's been out for a while and is about to make their return. And the fact that the Wordle made one believe that it was going to spell havoc, to me, that is teasing Zoe Stark who injured her knee in that ladder match at Halloween Havoc in 2021. So that is my expectation at this point in terms of who the mystery QR code is going to reveal. You know, don't take that as me knowing because I definitely don't and I haven't necessarily seen anyone else come up with, it's definitely this person based on X, Y, or Z, but that is me extrapolating potentially the word Havoc to refer to someone who got injured at Halloween Havoc which of course would be Zoe Stark. And if it is, I'm very excited that Zoe Stark is on her way back. She was running like at top tier speed to the to the very, you know, highest levels of the NXT women's division. And to have her come back, maybe even have her be the one to take the title off Mandy Rose, that would be fantastic. There was a vignette for Axiom who explained that he got lost in comic books as a kid, which allowed him to believe he could become anything. He was then revealed as wearing a luchador mask saying that he valued anonymity and saw it as a benefit. Now, I'm not sure I understand the decision to put a kid in a mask, but the name a kid prior to being a kid was anonymous kid. That's what this guy went by uh, when he was wrestling. And he also wrestled under a name El Nino Anonimino. And I probably screwed that up in Spanish. So apologies to all of my Spanish speaking listeners. But clearly the anonymous aspect of wrestling is part of this guy's long-term gimmick. So if you're going to be anonymous, then wrestling in a luchador mask makes a ton of sense. I like this vignette a lot. I liked it as much as last week's. They're basically showing, hey, this is a really smart dude 
who uses his brains, uses his athletic ability to succeed and win matches. And yes, I know that max masked wrestlers in WWE, you know, long-term historically aren't that successful with a couple of very rare and thin exceptions. Rey Mysterio being one of them. Of course, Rey was really developed in WCW and elsewhere before uh, joining WWE. So, you know, will this work long-term? I have no idea. But in terms of an NXT gimmick, getting this guy potentially involved in the North American championship picture, I do think there's something to this. The name is an improvement. The guy actually has a gimmick where he really didn't previously. And by the way, the Luchador mask look cool as well. So I am all in as of right now on Axiom. Sanga and Duke Hudson had a match. Backstage, Hudson was angry that Sanga was laughing at his cannonball into the pool last week. So they decided to bump meat. Obviously, I've already run the big meaty men slap and meat uh, sound drops on today's show, but this was the other match I was talking about. Hudson booted Sanga, who fell backwards into the ropes. Then he rebounded immediately to grab Hudson for a choke slam and win in three minutes. Now, I did not expect some like 10 minute banger here, but man, Hudson is just getting his ass kicked week after week. The guy is getting shit on in creative. Six of his last nine television matches have been less than five minutes, and he's one, four, and one in those six matches. He is way better than he's being booked. I know he's had a streak of really bad luck in terms of like the poker gimmick was horrible. And then he got a new one and, you know, people got fired that ruined it. But holy shit, they gotta do better than what they are currently doing with Duke Hudson. Caden Carter fought Tatum Paxley. Ivy Nile ran down after a minute to motivate Paxley. Carter held most of the momentum, but Paxley straddled Carter midair off a direction from Nile at ringside. That got rolled into a cradle-style pinning combination for the win in about three minutes and 30 seconds. This was a storyline match. It was still disappointing given the length of it, but I will say the finish was creative as hell, and the idea that someone came in, gave someone advice, and it immediately led to a pinfall, that to me was interesting and almost a little acceptable for it to be short. Tiffany Stratton complained to her nail stylist about getting literally dirty, fighting backstage with Wendy Chu last week. She was her typical valley girl snotty self. It was decent enough. Again, Stratton is far better than the gimmick she's been given. And last, and yes, definitely least, Joe Gacy said a cleansing and purification will take place next week on NXT. He also said the name of their group is now The Schism. This remains the single worst gimmick in all of professional wrestling. And I am absolutely dreading seeing grizzled young veterans reveal themselves from those idiotic maroon velvet druid costumes. The fact that they somehow came up with an even worse group name of Schism, along with the awful dyad tag team name, along with the awful gimmick, the budget version, the great value version of Bray Wyatt. It feels like this is a personal troll job to me. And I know it's not, of course, but it fucking feels like it. This is atrocious. Whoever came up with this, whoever continues to write it, the people that are allowing it to continue, I don't call for people to be fired, but they should be kicked off of the creative team. This is the opposite of creative. This is dumbfounding. I cannot believe that this is somehow continuing and getting worse and worse every single week on NXT television. That is one big pile of shit. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. 
Stop with the crap. This is bullshit, man. Seriously, just get it off my television. Joe Gacy, the guy, has some charisma. He has some potential. The slow talking, you know, ridiculous gimmick with these guys who are kind of supernatural, but not. And they're kind of about cancel culture, but they're not. It, it, it's so horrible. And it deeply hurts me inside to be someone who loves professional wrestling and loves sports entertainment and watches every week and probably likes NXT more than most other people. And yet you feed me this absolute shit. Please, please get it off my television. What I'm going to do now, folks, is get out of your ear holes because that is the end of this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I appreciate, as always, you guys joining us, listening to our breakdown of AEW and NXT. Of course, earlier this week, we had a full WWE episode. We talked about the disappointing build thus far for SummerSlam, and we went into great detail on the latest in the Vince McMahon situation. There's a ton from that WWE show. It was one of our longer episodes. I highly suggest you go back and listen to that if you have not already. But do not fret if you're an NXT person, an AEW person. We will be back in this spot, same bat time, same bat channel next Thursday for our AEW and NXT show. Of course, between now and then, next Tuesday, we will have our latest WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. On our way out, allow me one more time to remind you that this show... So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Leave a review. Explain why you love the show so much. We will, as we did today, read five-star reviews live on the podcast. And please, folks, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Thank you all once again for joining us. This is the Silver King signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.